Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. Today's guest is what you would call an OG. What do I mean by OG? Well, he won his first USPSA National Championship more than three decades ago, the days when Jerry Barnhart and Rob Latham were in their prime. He's an IPSC World Champion and 10-time National Champion. Without further ado, why don't you join me in welcoming to the show, Todd Jarrett. How you doing, Todd? Dave, what's up, man? How you doing, brother? You doing all Good. right? Good. Yeah, I, I, hoped, uh, I hope I did you all right by the intro. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you missed a few nationals, but... Um, oh, uh, dang it. That. Yeah, I probably... Um, let me see. Yeah, I think I'm about... A 16, I would consider legit nationals over the years for me personally. Um, I think, yeah, so one, winning the first nationals in 1991 um, was pretty cool for me. And then turned around, and see, I was second in, in, in 1993 uh, and then won the world championship in 96 down in Brazil. Uh, and then I was second again at the next world shoot and then second again, again. And then I was second again. Uh, there's some guy named Eric Grafell. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this guy. Or not. Never heard of this guy. Yeah, he came out of the blue somewhere. I think he came from another planet. Uh, Cause the guy's still pretty damn good. Today. <laughs> Ridiculously good still today. Yeah. 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 So Eric and I are good friends. Uh, we chat uh, not all the time, but we do chat often um, you know, across um, Facebook and, uh, we text each other from time to time. So he's um, got my new range up. Uh, he is doing well. Uh, and still, he won the, won the world championship again this year. Uh, I told him I'd give him a break. I wasn't going to show up. And so, um, <laughs> no, I just don't have the, I don't have the time um, anymore. Uh, I am running, running around doing a thousand things with, you know, all these different companies that I work with. Um, and I have um, have another business that I also run here in the in, in the Richmond uh, in the Petersburg area. Um, my father's been in business for for, um, for decades in the HVAC business. So um, between that, wow. I have a real estate business. Um, I'm working for um, Staccato and Hoppies and CCI and Federal um, and Seymour. what else? And Seymour. I mean, you know, all these guys are keeping me busy. And then I try to train as much as I can because the wife loves it, still loves to shoot. And God forbid I got to crank the handle, you know, here on uh, 3,000 3, you know, rounds a week just to, to keep her um, happy. And so, so yeah, so it's, um, it's been a, um, a, I would say I'm a lot busier than I want to be. And then I, they called me up and said, hey, we want you to run for president for USPSA. And I was going like, yeah, I think I got like, I have 45 minutes a day left. I can fill. Um, so um, so I, I, I thought I'd jump in uh, on the USPSA side and give that a shot. Um, there's a lot of great people running for that. And there's something we can chat about, chat about later if you'd like to. I do. So what I normally do is, is there's for you, there would normally be three parts. We're a little bit limited on time and I don't want to cut back on the meat. So I'm going to cut out the first part, which is just their icebreaker questions, like favorite movies, favorite books, that type of thing. So we're going to jump right into the meat of things. When you and I were talking earlier, you're, as I knew, you were from rural Virginia. So you probably grew up shooting guns, hunting, that type of thing. Oh, I did. Uh, my father actually um, uh, 
I mean, I was tromping around in the woods with my dad when I was five years old. And, and so I always tell this story to my students and uh, for a little, little history background on myself. Um, there was a time when I, I wanted like a semi-auto shotgun like my dad. And dad goes, um, he goes, um, son, when you get big enough and you get strong enough to be able to handle one and maybe kill your first deer, then maybe we can, that can happen. So when I was, my birthday is in November. So um, on my birthday at seven years old, I got my first single barrel 20 gauge Stevens uh, shotgun. Well, of course, um, I, I told dad I was kind of disappointed that I didn't get a semi-auto shotgun like he has. He had a Model 51 Ithaca, which I actually own today. I still have. My dad doesn't shoot anymore. And so one thing led to another. Um, after I got it, um, I'm hunting hard with dad. We're hunting and we're hunting. I hunt with a couple clubs down in southeast Virginia. And I killed my first deer on December 7th, uh, just a few weeks after that. And I said, dad, you promised me that if I kill a deer i might be able to get a semi-auto and so uh, on christmas which is basically um you know six weeks eight weeks later uh i end up getting my first semi-auto tw uh, 20 gauge which i still own today i still have it at the house so uh that was my story wow. of getting into shooting um as a young child and um you know a kid today i'm you know if you if you tell a parent today they're going hunting with their kid at seven years old i, I don't think that would be uh, something that we would probably um, actually probably approve of in this society we live in today. So that kind of kicked off that. Uh, so I shot, I, you know, I was a big hunter for uh, all the way through my teens. I love hunting. Um, I did dog trials. Um, I was in the major, you know, I was majorly in the coon hunting um, and competition side of dog handling at one time. Wow. I think I had 50 dogs at one time um, that I that took care of. So, yeah, so I was really big into field trials, uh, hunting dogs, deer hunting dogs. And then um, uh, when I was 19 years old, um, I took another job uh, from a company um, up in Richmond. And um, and I got held up uh, one night uh, about 2 o'clock in the morning heading to work. So I was an HVA, HVAC mechanic. And then um, so guys guy stuck a gun in my face, opened up the door, and told me he was going wanted to ride to um, – to, you know, downtown Richmond, and I was going like, I didn't have nothing of it. So I punched the gas, went through a red light at 2.30 in the morning, and uh, the guy was falling out, and I looked in the rearview mirror, I see a gun flying, and and uh, I went back and told my buddies at work what had happened, and uh, they're like, hey, man, you need to come hang out with us, because we go to an indoor range up here in Richmond, and we shoot every Friday night. I said, well, I don't, I don't have a pistol. All I have is a shotgun. Well, come on, borrow our stuff. And that started me getting into the action shooting sports uh, at a very young age. Um, and then, uh, of course, you know, you couldn't even own a gun to you 21 years of old, 21 years of age uh, at the time. But I had friends who, hey, Todd, borrow my gun, shoot this gun. So my very first gun was literally a, um, a, a Model 10 Smith & Wesson but that I shot bowling pin matches with. And then uh, one thing led to another. I was going like, well, I'm... I'm losing out here uh, because you guys got like semi-autos. And so I bought my first Colt, Colt 45 and that kind of kicked off my career in the uh, semi-auto game from when I was seven years old until I was 20 years old. So um, that's kind of 
kind of the story of my of my starting of USPSA anyway, or the action shooting sports. Now, when was your first match in USPSA then? Wow, my first match, it was kind of funny um, that you, uh, I was telling the wife about this here a while back ago. And my first match that I ever shot was actually March of 84. Um, and it was, um, I had been shooting bowling pins and some some bastardized versions of, of uh, action shooting because it was a little bit all over the place that time. So I show up, I'm the only guy there that's kind of like didn't know what was going on. Everybody was chatting and I was kind of like that new guy. And I was going, what the hell is going on here? I said, okay, I understand that, you know, here it is right here. So, okay, I'm sitting at a table. I have to flip over some cards. I have to pick up my gun off the table and I shoot six, uh, six shots or three targets uh, across the table, go through a doorway, which is only like four or five feet away. Uh, and then there's three more targets. There's only 12 rounds. So I, I get back home and I go like, I don't know how I, I wonder how I did in the match because it was only one stage. And so, mm. but you could shoot a pocket gun, you could shoot a semi-auto. Uh, they had a nine millimeter category at the time, but I didn't own but a Model 10 Smith & Wesson revolver. And so it was literally, I drove an hour and a half to shoot six rounds uh, <laughs> at one table and then six <laughs> rounds at the door. So, uh, so one thing led to another. Uh, I get home and 30 days later, I get my, my I get the mail and it goes, it's a result. We had things mailed to us back then. Okay. We didn't have practice score and all these other things we had. So I opened, I opened it up and I look at it and it was like 52 people, 53 people there. And I was dead last. I'm going like, well, this is not going to happen again. So um, <laughs> start practicing on getting and in, getting more involved in the, and practical shooting at the time. Bowling pins were actually fairly um, prevalent in my area at the time, uh, different places in the state. And by shoot, by the summer of um, of 84, um, I, I probably knew of probably four or five clubs that were in the state that were shooting. And after that, I was gone every single weekend, uh, shooting a match somewhere in the Carolinas and Pennsylvania uh, or in Virginia. Um, and I did that for 20 years. So um, me and my partner, John Benton at the time. So, um, so John and I, we, we were putting 60,000 miles a year uh, on the road, um, traveling, shooting, wow. shooting matches. And um, so uh, we got hooked on it really quick. And I would say by, cause I shot my first state championship in, um, in 85, um, which was in Roanoke, Virginia in the Western part of the state. And um, I ended up winning C class and I ended up winning an overall stage that year um, at the match. And one thing led to another. It was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to head off to the U.S. Nationals. I'm, I'm that good. And I was C-class at the time. And uh, I think I turned A-class. And then in 86, um, I won the state championship, started traveling around, doing all the major matches up and down the East Coast. And um, that kind of started my career, um, you know, but – in that period of time, but Jesus, it was, I mean, Dave, I mean, we were going to such a transition period then as far as guns and ammo and powder and compensators and springs. And it, it was, it was only iron sights then that period of time. But I, I can't tell you um, how much changes were taking place literally every 30 days from compensators, to companies wow. coming out with holsters, um, 
new 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 springs and flowers for guns. It, it was just never ending, and it was constantly uh, you know a battle of going out and buying and finding the latest you know product that somebody's putting out because there wasn't a lot of ways of getting to that product um, because of the internet and what we currently know today is you know jumping online and calling up Karen Butler or Shooter's you know connection and buying whatever you want. You know, it's mm-hmm. right there in the catalog and um, you kind of like you kind of waited um, to see, you know, if your buddy buys something you're like, Dave, you did you all oh, you bought this new spring and follower. Does it work? And went, nah, it's a piece of junk top. I'm going like, OK, well, we're not going to buy it. But can we make somebody else make that product and make it work better? So then we would go on the phone and we would call this gunsmith or we would call. You know, somebody who was in the industry, we call Bill Wilson up and going like, hey, you guys ever thought about making this? And, um, you, you know, you were always trying to advance the, the 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 guns to be able to keep up with the accuracy and the, and the speed that we needed um, in order to compete competitively, you know, um, on, a, on a national level. Because uh, up and down that time, I mean, you know, like you were you were out there and you were going like, OK. Um, I have a three and a half pound trigger job and it's the only trigger job I can get on my gun that's reliable and something would happen to it. You send it to a gunsmith and it'd be $300 and you come back and another gunsmith say, oh, I can give you a two and a half pound trigger job. Oh, great. I I, I want I want a lighter trigger. And and then when you feel your buddy's triggers, are you going like, how did you get a two pound trigger job to work in your gun? And you're going the entire time you're staying I don't know how this guy did it, but it's really nice, and I shoot really fast, and I'm more accurate with it. And so I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to call Brownells up, and I'm buying all the crap that you need to do a trigger job with, and I learned how to do a trigger job on my guns. And, of course, then the guys wanted to come to me. and like, Todd, how do you get a pound-and-a-half trigger job? It's a science. It's a science, and you need to pay me a lot of money to do it. And so I uh, started doing trigger jobs for my buddies, and uh, it's only the guys who couldn't beat me, of course, you know, so. but <laughs> of it, course. Was, um, it was a fun, exciting time uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, I, I go back and I, I show some of my friends that come over from time to time. I go like, hey, here's a gun I won the Nationals with in 91. They're going like, are, are you serious? You actually won a match with this gun? I went, yeah, I, I won a match with this gun. Well, God, this is horrible it's just horrendous got a 14 pound recoil spring in there there's a there's a two and a half pound um you know trigger on there that sucks it's the original gun that I, I shot the match with and i was going like and the gun the gun shot super accurately at 50 yards away because back then we shot tons of you know 50 yard standards um at the nationals which were partial targets five second drills standing kneeling prone uh, strong hand at 25 yards, weak hand at, at, you know, at 20 yards away, which is, you know, you give somebody a target now at 50 yards away, they, they like freak out. We, we, we had one at, um, at Del Marva this past weekend. Well, I always say I was shot it last Friday in the pouring down rain um, all day long, which was kind of miserable. I uh, sucked it up and the wife made me stay because she wanted to shoot. Carrie wanted to shoot it. So, um, so we, um, had a 45 yard target and I told um I told Kevin McPhee I said dude I have not seen a target pass 40 yards away at a at a match in years. He goes, Yeah, we're gonna see more of it. Now and I love to see more of that because it was yeah. amazing 
uh, how many people uh, had misses on it in our squad, or they would, you know, look like buckshot on one. So, um, so it, <laughs> it's done. Uh, it's a, the, the, the history of the, of the game and how it cycles through, we see cycles through of accuracy and, you know, precision. Um, and, and normally I, I see it probably in the regional. I mean, you, you may see this at area two, you may see it at area three, or you may see it at area seven, you know, they, they're the regional in, in the sense of how stage designers work everything and how they, how they operate and keep us uh, on our toes for, you know, precision and accuracy, um, you know, in the, in the, in the active shooting community anyway. Yeah, I've I've even seen lately that you know PCC shooters don't even care to see targets that far away, and I'm like, oh, right. you got the weapon system to do it with. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, they're hundred yard guns. I mean, you can, you right. know, I mean, you honestly you can you should be able to hit a six inch target at 150 yards away. Uh, my JP will do that at 150 yards away. I know my equipment, know my guns. Uh, I think. I think we're losing a little bit of in the in the sport of understanding what precision is all about. Uh, practical shooting, you know, when it started back in his back in the seventies, when Jeff Cooper kicked off with it uh, and started IPSC, and that kind of started the game. I mean, he's rolling over in his grave right now. Um, well, he probably rolls over every single year for the last you know thirty years since we put a red dial on the gun. Um, uh, he never liked the red dot, never liked the compensators. Um, but I think the practicality of what he did bring to the table um, in the very beginning, um, I, I think really we should keep that um, that legacy, you know, um, you know, still into the sport, in my opinion. So what do you, which division do you think best encapsulates what he brought to the game? Uh, I would have, you know, I mean, the the one and only is really, you know, single stack classic, Sing, you know, okay. single stack, but it's dying. You know, uh, we is. have 82, 85% of every, all these matches now are red dot. Uh, it's pretty sad that you go to a match and you look and it's kind of like there are two guys shooting L10. There are five guys shooting production. There's seven limited shooters and there may be, there may be a revolver shooting it every 10th match. So, um, you know, single stack is still um, the classic line. Uh, and, and, and I, I kind of hate to see the game actually kind of go away um, in the sense where um, it, it, is the, it is my favorite of all of the uh, categories out there to shoot. Uh, this year, I'm going to be shooting a, a different division at the at the Ironsight Nationals because you're throwing them all in one. Uh, so USPSA headquarters have all put everything in one this year. So um, I would like to see that as a separate, uh, you know, um, you know, separate match like we did for years. And when Springfield did it in Passa, I think they did it for 16 or 17 years. And Rob was heavily involved in that. Uh, and I was a big fan of it. And, and I went out and shot it, you know, for, for years and years. Uh, and, and still got my ass whipped by Rob. So, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it is um, one of those things where, you know, how can we keep the Ironsight life going uh, and throw the lifeline somewhere along the way. So we may want to have to look at that uh, down the road and potentially have some, um, 
have some other things to look at. So when it comes to red dots, um, I, I can honestly say that I am truly one of the pioneers of the red dot. There was only three or four of us uh, that put them on guns back in the 80s. I put mine on, I believe, in the latter part of 88. And, and it was because of Brian Enos, really. Brian Enos won the, won the uh, Bianchi Cup, uh, I think, a year before. Uh, it may have been 87. Time, time flies. I'm not sure. Brian would probably know that for sure off the top of his head. Uh, but is he were 87 or 88, Brian won with the red dot aim point on his revolver. And we're going like, so Brian was going like, well, well, dude, we might be able to put this like on this semi auto. And I, I was going like, you think, Brian? Oh, dude, you got to, man, the stars are aligned and you really, you should check it out, Cody. So they call me Cody over to you. And um, so Jerry Barnhart and I, we decided, I'm going to build one and put it on there. So we were trying to get mounts built. Uh, so I had my gunsmith who was down in North Carolina at the time. A guy named a uh, fabulous gunsmith named uh, Blake Gann at the time who was building all my competition guns. I was going like, Blake, we got to, I got to build a mount, dude. We got to put it, put this on there. Well, what kind of dot you want to use? And I went, well, I don't know. Here's an ultra dot. This thing costs $69. Uh, let's see if it'll it hold up. And I know that Tasco at the time, they're called PDP2s. Uh, they were like pretty long, probably five or six inches long. A lot of them were huge, and we end up um, um, sticking. I end up sticking a, uh, a ultra dot on my on my gun, and I got a lot of rounds to it. Um, in the beginning, I loved it. At the end, I hated it. Um, I put it on. I take it off, and then uh, the first time we got to compete together uh, was up in Northern Virginia. So Jerry Barnhart showed up. And Jerry had a red dot on his gun. We had been communicating back and forth. What do you like about it? What's the problems you're seeing? All the mounts are falling off. We need bigger screws. Um, we need, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, something that's not going to lose, you know, batteries. Just, batteries were just dying. You know, you could put them in there and they wouldn't last 10 hours. And we were trying to figure out how to stack batteries. I was making little bitty extensions to, to double up batteries in them that I had a friend of mine, a machinist make. And so we're running this in there, and, and the batteries are going like, "Hey, I can get 20 hours now out of a um, out of a red dot." Oh, that's cool, man! And so then we were messing with aim points, and so it, so Jerry and I got to compete together uh, at, uh, up in Woodbridge, Virginia. Um, at I forget the name of the range up there at the time, um, but we went up there and we competed against each other for the first time with red dot, and I edged out Jerry with a red dot. And then we were still contemplating on a better design. So I went to an aim point um, very shortly after that, which was a bigger dot. Um, the adjustment screws in it, I mean, they just absolutely suck. You had to almost freezer your gun every single 150 rounds. And it was just a constant battle of what, what, what went on with the red dot um, world in that period of time. And um, so we finally got mounts correctly. We were got the screws, we knew how to put them on the guns, and this was probably by the summer of 89. And we were going to area matches, and we're shooting them, and I would shoot iron sights at one, open, and then I'd put a red dot back on, and, and it was we it was just controversy. Um, you know, we couldn't keep zero. We had issues with them, take them on and off. And then in 1990, um, the early part of 1990, we all kind of went to them, but we were also looking at how the stage designs were. And, you know, since we were all iron sight shooters, we all kind of 
really understood iron science, but the dot, we were still learning that. And so I go to the nationals that year and literally a month before I'm going like, I'm taking my dot off. I talked to Robbie, Robbie's going like, I'm taking my dot off. I'm shooting irons. Um, and Jerry Barnhart, Jerry Barnhart showed up with the red dot. And Jerry had put the time in, got his dot working and he kicked our asses. And that kind of started that point uh, he, he did that with a single stack gun at the time. And with, with that, when Jerry did that with a red dot, I think he shot a PDP two at the time. And then um, from that point on, every single open national championship has been won with a red dot on his gun. And most of them have been Seymour's over the years. Um, I'll probably say 90% of those were Seymour's. So um, one thing um, led to another. Um, then we went to high cap. Uh, high cap guns came into play in in the summer of 1990, and I had built a high cap gun um, from Paraordnance, and the Paraordnance had picked me up, but I didn't shoot a Paraordnance at the Nationals that year because it was being built by my gunsmith at the time. So Blake had built a built a gun, and we were trying to get the magazines working on it. It was a it was a catastrophe uh, trying to get that gun operating, but by the summer of 91, the bugs have worked out of it. And then I ended up winning nationals, winning the first um, USPSA nationals with a high cap gun and a red dot on it. And then that was the start of high capacity guns, um, winning in um, winning national championships um, within USPSA. And, um, and that, that hadn't stopped a day. And of course, um, I worked with the company for 20 years. And after that 20 year period, I took a I took a hiatus from working for gun companies. I was tired of running up and down the road. And um, I got a phone call about five years ago from uh, Staccato. And at the time it was STI. And, and they go, hey, Todd, we want you to come on board with us. We're going to transition the company from STI to Staccato. And uh, we're going to revamp the entire uh, line of guns and make a better um, 2011 pistol. And said, well, I'd like to come on. I went, yeah, well, I got a lot of knowledge about 1911, 2011 pistols. So um, uh, I'm kind of your guy. So one thing led to another. I, I, I came on board with them. And uh, that has been uh, uh, kind of my story, um, you know, working in the firearms industry um, on the on the firearms side anyway. Now, in 1990, what was considered high capacity? Um, we could get, we could get, um, I could successfully get 18 rounds, 20 rounds in a mag, uh, in a gun, um, that ran hundred percent. We did have big sticks, 170 millimeter at the time. Power factor was 175. Most of us ran like a 185 power factor because we thought the guns actually were calmer, uh, with the current compensators that we were using. And a lot of the comps were, I mean, I think I put on probably five different comps in 1990, um, different styles of testing uh, along the way. Um, and then we did have um, big sticks at the time that were, I would say I could get 28 rounds in a mag uh, and, and somewhat work reliably, um, but we never trusted them. Um, because mm -hmm. at that time, Chip McCormick came out with his um, high capacity gun at the time and that became, um, you know, the, the next, you know, phase of, uh, of the 2011 platform um, that 
Para had to deal with as a competitor. So when Chip McCormick came up with that, Chip, um, you know, launched that, and then Strayer Trip, um, Air, you know, which is at the time was SPI, uh, Strayer, Sandy Trip, and Virgil Trip, um, all that patent from him started putting that in there, and they could actually get 29 rounds in a mag uh, at that period of time. Uh, since then, of course, we can get magazines that can hold uh, 29, 30 rounds in them, depending on the kit that you're putting in the gun and, and how you want to push your gun to a point where, because we're running, these things are like Indy cars now. Um, mm -hmm. you know, open guns literally are like Indy cars. Same thing in carry optics, and now we got limited optics. You know, LOs did, just got approved here on Monday. Uh, you know, we're trying to work the bugs out of that. And for me, um, God, there's a lot. There's a lot going on uh, trying to tune these things up and get them to where we want. You know, we don't know if we want to go five-inch barrel. Is it four and a half? It's five-four. Do we go with a six? Um, I'm experimenting with, you know, several different guns at this right this point right now, and um, I still haven't settled in on what I want yet. Now, were you running the uh, 38 TJ back in the 90s? I did. We had so much problems with. 38 Supers at the time. Um, so when 38 Super, so I was one of the first guys that started competing with the 38 Super um, in the state of Virginia. Uh, there were several other pros, Rob, Jerry Barnhart, Michael Plasco, uh, Chip McCormick, Jerry Barnhart. They had switched over uh, in 86, I think. And there was a lot of problems with that cartridge because it was a rim cartridge. But remember, we shouldn't single stack them. So we went to a high cap gun at that period of time we didn't start putting, um, you know, feed ramps on, you know, ramp um, barrels on guns until I want to say like 88. Um, it was probably 88 at 89. Uh, and the problem was it was a rim cartridge. It just absolutely was horrendous to get these things to operate correctly uh, with a light spring. We just couldn't get them to work. So you had to run a 13 or 14 pound recoil spring in the gun to keep that gun operating correctly. Um, and be able to strip it off because it was a rim cartridge. So in 1993, um, maybe 92, I think 92, um, I, I woke up one morning about 3 a.m., which I did often trying to figure out how to make these guns operate better. And I called a buddy of mine up. I said, hey, can I, can I borrow your lathe? He goes, yeah, sure, Todd. So I set up a fixture, and I took a 1,000 pieces of 223 brass, and I chopped it off. The 38, the 38 Super overall length. And that's where the rimless cartridge came from for the 38 TJ. Now, wow. I have to go back and revisit that because Matt McLaren and I went together on that to try to make that, um, make that you know, actually um, be something that I think that we wanted to have the correct cartridge. And so... I let Matt say, okay, hey, all right, Matt, you go ahead and run that um, cartridge. I think he called it the Matt McLaren MGM cartridge, and but he only tried it for a little while, uh, and it didn't take off. But I didn't like the design of it, so I wanted to really um, redesign the cartridge a little bit. So I changed the rebate on it, uh, very similar to which was a 223, and I put a bigger hook on that, and so that made the webbing of that cartridge stronger at the base to be able to run a hotter load. 
And so, um, because at the time we were still running 175 power factor and we needed, uh, needed that strength of that cartridge in order to be, or whatever it was, we're back. So, um, I forget where we were. Where were we chatting about? I was chatting about something. So you had just mentioned that you had redesigned the cartridge because you guys were still running 175 power factor and you needed the strength of that cartridge to manage those pressures. Yes. And so um, so I got a hold of, um, at the time I was sponsored by, by Hornady. And uh, I went and Steve Hornady. I went, hey, Steve. I got this problem, man. I said, can you make a cartridge for me? He's going like, oh, God, okay, what do you got? So I explained to him what, I, what we were doing with it. And then one thing led to another. We started um, producing it, and I was selling about 2,000, uh, 2 million pieces a year. So um, so Hornady um, made that cartridge uh, for me, and I sold that um, through different means um, for probably um, probably 10 years. And then... And then things got busy in the firearms industry. Uh, Steve called me up and said, hey, Todd, I'm sorry. We're not going to be able to make that anymore. Um, but let's um, just go ahead and, um, you know, we'll keep it in play in case you need it. So I called up Starline. and my buddies at Starline, and, and they pretty much said, um, hey, can you guys, can you do this for me? And they went, oh, no problem at all. We'd be all glad to knock it out. So I think we still sell somewhere around two and a half to three million pieces of that uh, globally now, uh, still popular. Um, so it's, um, I sell that directly through Starline, even though Starline has been sold to Safari land. Uh, there's been some little ups and downs there, but um, competitors can still get it. So it was a straight wall case, a, you know, a rimless cartridge that gave you the same exact extraction area as a 38 super at the time with a better, better webbing on it. So it was very similar to a two, two, three, um, base, version of that so for me uh i, I it was a blessing in disguise um that cured all the magazine problems for high caps especially in the pair ordinance at the times um and then there were a couple of companies that came out the philippines uh came out with a rimless cartridge which was that we know today you know uh is a super comp and they pretty much knocked off they just made a 30 super a rimless cartridge is what they did uh, and a lot of people buy, and uh, it's still prevalent today. But nine millimeter, as you know, uh, has become the primary, um, you know, cartridge, really around the world for shooting major with, um, and also, um, you know, carry optics, which has been, you know, God, it's just taken off like no tomorrow. Single stack people have gone to nine millimeter in the single stack, you know, world, and of course we know production is all nine millimeter. So I would say we're getting close to probably seventy percent. 80% of all cartridges shot will be nine millimeter. Um, I would say probably close to 80% of all cartridges are nine mil now. So it's like, uh, it's cheap to get 40 cows gone away. No 45. Um, there are, there are still a fair amount of open shooters that do shoot, um, the, um, you know, uh, super cop and, and the 38 TJ, TJ, obviously, cause I'm still seeing numbers out there. Now the, you can, use the 38 tj and the 38 super comp you can you can okay it's the exact same cartridge yep so okay so the only thing different between the 38 tj and a 38 super comp is that uh 38 super comp is a nine millimeter extractor hook where the 38 tj is a 38 super hook so you've got a lot bigger hook on the gun 
for guns where shooting fast. So if you're having problems with sticking in a chamber um, in the past with, you know, the, you know, with a super comp, then uh, my brass will cure that. And you're going to get a lot more life out of my brass because it's built. So you build brass two different ways. All brass is done either soft or hard. That's it. There's no two other ways of doing it. You either do it 9 to 11 on the beryllium scale or you do it from 11 to 13, which is on the military side, um, which they require for all of their cartridges um, and how that's done. So I'm very, very uh, familiar in how manufacturing goes of that. And, uh, in all my years of being in the business, uh, I've got to see literally, you know, hundreds of manufacturing facilities uh, dealing with them within the firearms industry over the years as far as, you know, uh, parts and that, you know, uh, OEM companies we have to go to. Um, people I get invited to go, Todd, come by and see my place. You're here. We'd love to have you, you know, come by. So over the years, I have been very fortunate enough to see some really, really cool stuff and see how things are manufactured uh, within the firearms world. Yeah, I, I feel like um, that's why I said OG when I introduced you, just because you've been in the business for so long, you've seen that transformation from like you said guns that were were not the best they were they were good for the day but by today's standards nobody would buy them it's like no thank you you know so you've seen that entire transformation and one of the things you mentioned before we get into uh uspsa presidency and stuff like that you know you were talking about how you rob jerry and everybody was talking about the red dots and working on things. But again, it's not like today where you can, oh, let me jump on here and send a quick email or let me text them. I mean, you only had hardwired telephones or the mail. So how long of a process was this to go through this design phase and, and working through everything? I, I would say... Well, of course, I, at the time I was working full time job. I didn't go pro until '95, so um, so I mean, it was literally every weekend. I mean, there were weekends that I wanted to shoot a major match, but it was important to go to my gunsmith and spend two days at his place designing or developing something in the gun or around the gun or on top of the gun that would make me more competitive a month from now. So um, you were constantly trying to figure out how to do things. I, I would say, I mean, we always figured it out. I mean, we, we figured out what we needed to do um, when it came down to, you know, parts and pieces. We knew who were making them, okay? So, so just think about bullets, okay? So at the, at the time, um, bullets in general were, we went from shooting a 170 grain uh, Sierra bullet for major in, in one year to the following year that I was shooting a 124 grain bullet. And in a, back in the day, I know what they, they, they would call a super face because we were blowing up guns because they didn't have ramp barrels in them. So, you know, 185 power factor, if you didn't use new brass or at least shot, if it shot more than three or four times, you're going to blow the case on it, you know, with the powders that we wow. were using at the time. So uh, I can't tell you how many cases I blew in my, in my career at that period of time. So, um, so I remember going to the Nationals in 88, maybe in 89, maybe it was 89, and I showed up with a Hornady flat point, 124, and the word got around that Todd was shooting a 124-grain bullet. The ROs honestly did not want to R over me 
because they thought I was going to blow up the gun and I was going to injure the ROs. Because wow. everybody's going like, well, you, you can't make that operate correctly. Uh, and at the time, we were shooting 150-grain bullets and 135-grain bullets from a company called CP uh, up in a guy named John Rico, who was up in Pennsylvania, who sold hundreds of thousands and millions of bullets to us in the, in the world uh, with 135-grain bullets. It's a great bullet, but we thought 135 was kind of like, we can't go below that. We're going to blow the guns up. And then there was guys shooting 130 Sierras, and I went from a 135 to a 124 uh, in, in literally in, in several months. It shot flatter. It was super accurate at 50 yards away. The gunshot, an inch at 50. Um, we, we finally figured out the red dot, you know, I mean, the iron sights on them, the, the width of the front sight we wanted, you know, and it actually worked better with the lighter bullet because we were pushing that bullet faster. So we got, you know, better recoil back on the target with iron sights in that period of time. And God almighty, once we put a red dot on it, everybody went to 124s or 115. So um, once we mm. figured out that we could have supported barrels, powders back then were very difficult to be able to try to master. Believe it or not, I used to mix powders. And if oh, you told wow. somebody that today, they were going like, you're going to blow yourself up. I'm going, like, yep. yeah, no, but I, it might blow, but we're going to test it. I was actually uh, mixing powders, um, uh, two different powders, 80 to 80, 20 ratio uh, to make major with a powder uh, back in the day. I'm not going to mention anybody what it was. Because I wanted my going out there and do it and blowing himself up. Because I blew up a couple guns uh, along the way doing that, and it wasn't fun. And um, they would—I just, just cracked the barrels on. I mean, the slides and the frames mm. were still good. So, um, okay. but yeah. Uh, so, so I—I don't—I don't recommend anybody uh, going out there and mixing powders. But we were doing some crazy stuff uh, in that period of time and trying to figure out uh, what was going on. I mean, I mean, we—if you blew a cartridge, you were blowing the grips on your single stack gun you were just splitting them wide open they were just like wow. split our way at the time so yeah so it was it was a it was a fun period a fun period of time and um <laughs> now you just call up atlas or you call up you know staccato and go like hey i want to get an xl um or i want to get an open gun belt uh shows up at your door with six magazines ready to go um the gunsmith's going to tell you to load it he likes uh it's going to tell you the powder charge the primer uh, and it's what this gun does, you know, at 50 yards away or 25 or whatever your, you know, your liking is. And then you're off and running. So there is no more testing of anything. You already know that that information is so readily, readily available for everybody to, um, to be able to use. I mean, you're off and running. Here we go. So, and I don't, yeah. even, I don't even want to talk about Dave. I don't want to talk about holsters. Okay. Oh. We talk about. I, I literally. I'm just going to tell you. I probably have 150 different holsters that I used um, when I started in '83 until where I'm at today, which is basically 40 years later. So wow. that's for another show, man. That's a way for another show. Uh, I, you know, while you were having technical difficulties, my wife came in, and I was like, I could sit here and talk to this guy for three days straight and and not stop. I was like, he's just a wealth of knowledge from the beginning to now. So I, this, all of this fascinates me. The history of the USPSA and the actual shooting sport itself is fascinating to me. So it, 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 it you know, it really is. And you know, I know USPSA, um, Donna uh, Webb, who is a, a general manager. Donna is really 
uh, gone out on a limb to, because I have been pushing for something that to keep the history and legacy of USPSA um, for years. I said, we're, these guys are dying. They're, they're, they're going away. Uh, they have valuable, you know, archives that they have in their place. And wh why in the world can't we, you know, put this in a place where everyone can see it at down the road? Um, because yeah. it, we're looking at almost 50 years of practical shooting, um, you know, so with practical shooting, you know, being being something that uh, is something that we need is um, very, very important. Uh, I totally agree. I mean, I wonder if John Shaw is still around, John Kirkham, those original guys who won. But, you know, there you, you, Jerry, Rob, Brian, I mean, that would be a heck of a forum to have all getting together and be able to talk about the history and putting that down and in chronological order, you know, what happened when and not just who won what, but what actually happened in the sport in those years and how it went from where it is, was then to today because the, with the technology advances in the guns and the dots and the ammunition and the powder, I mean, everything has, it's light years difference. Yeah, that, that is an overheating problem on my phone here. So I never oh. have that problem, but uh, the first time was a signal loss for some reason, but that is an overheating problem with my telephone. So I apologize for that. Um, That's okay. I know I got to get off here. I got to get off here in about 10 minutes. I apologize for that. But I would love to come back on with you and do some major chatting um, whether it be, you know, this week or next week or some, probably next week, be, uh, if you're available, uh, you want to chat, I'll, I'll get on my computer at home. Uh, I'm out and about, but I do have something I got to jump on here in about 20 minutes. So, um, okay. So, um, I would love to be able to chat with you. I, you know, I love talking about the history of the, of the, of USPSA, uh, where we have gone, where we're going at. Um, I'm excited to see, um, what's going to happen with the, uh, organization here. Um, and, you know, with the new president. So we got a lot of great people running. Um, I have a lot of friends of mine that have thrown their, you know, their hat and ring for running for the, you know, presidency um, on this year. Uh, I know that I think there's about six or seven of us now. So um, I'm going to throw my agenda up on the website either tonight or tomorrow one. Um, just okay. trying to fine tune a little bit. Um, but I already, already posted everything on USPSA um, where the presidential site is going to be at. So if you want to poke at that, look at that and say, Todd, how in the world are you going to do that? Well, I got a plan. And so um, I think all of us um, have great intentions of, of growing the sport uh, and making this game um, more accessible for more people in a lot of ways. Um, I would like to see um, some things done that uh, that hasn't been done in the past over 25 years. And I've known the first president, Dave Thomas, um, I mean, from the very beginning. And um, so those guys um, who started the game uh, literally have worked their butts off to get where we are today. And we, you know, there's some things we do really, really well at. And I think we know how to run matches. Uh, we have a rule book that you need a lawyer to, to to follow you around in case something goes wrong. Um, uh, good, bad, or indifferent, we have that rule book. Uh, and I know the NROI guys um, who do a hard work on that, um, my hat goes off to them over the years. And I actually 
have implemented some rules in the past over the years that things that should have been done, in my opinion, uh, should have been put in place. And it took them several years to get that done. Um, uh, I think some of the rules are, uh, you know, it's difficult to manage um, certain rules out there that, you know, that as the competitors go through, you can figure out if you can go on page 49, you could, do you realize you could go to page 57 and you could arbitrate page 49 if you wanted. Uh, and those are things that um, only seasoned veterans out there really know how to go and do that. Uh, the biggest one thing we just, just make your walkthroughs um, on your stage, just make them simple. I mean, just don't try to make them complicated, make everything as simple as possible. And so you don't even have to open up that rule book. And that's my, that's my um, kind of my feelings about the organization over the years. But um, I think we, I think we have a better, better clue of what we can do to save more money. I, my, my ultimate goal that I would love to see USPSA have its own facility. I would like to see HR. I would like to see uh, a history and legacy uh, museum there. I would like to see us be able to have our RO classes, junior programs, new pro, new programs. Uh, we could list it, lease this out to local communities with law enforcement, uh, maybe military that may want to use it. We need to be able to give back to that community. And we need to say that we, we are a legitimate organization. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But yeah. Um, look, at, I mean, Sporting Clays has their own place and SAS has its own facility and Trap and Skeet. I mean, all these people in the shooting, USA shooting, they have their own in-house place that you can go and visit and shoot and understand where board meetings are, where people can actually, you know, understand what the organization is physically doing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm okay with, you know, we just closed up, um, you know, Cedro Willie and stayed 40 grand a year. And Ted Murphy did that. I uh, had a lot to do with that. And Ted's a super smart guy. He's a great businessman uh, when it comes to accounting side and, and for me personally, I think um, uh, we have some really good board members out there. And some have been on there for a long time. It's great. Uh, we got some positions that are opening up. Um, and I'm kind of curious to see how uh, the new um, area directors uh, that will be voted in here this year will be coming out. I think Area 6 is um, popping up. Um, I know we have um, a couple of areas that are going to be uh, an issue that we need to um, address and uh, they, the board members make all the rules. They make all the rules. Only thing that really I am as a figurehead, uh, there are about five things that I have to do uh, as a president or whoever the president is in order to um, get it, um, get things done correctly. Uh, they're pretty simple. So the bylaws are all there for that. Um, I don't make any decisions. Only thing I can do is help um, promote agendas that I hear in the field from members. Uh, and I, I am a member. I'm a life member and I, I want to see those things um, um, be taken seriously. And I, I want all of us to understand that, you know, what can we do to grow the sport and what's going to happen down the road uh, if we do not, um, you know, if we're not able to shoot, you know, shoot guns, what's the next evolution? Uh, we're going like, oh, Todd, we're always going to be able to shoot guns. Yeah, we might in some backwoods of Jerry, Jerry uh, Mitchell at house. Okay, down in the bayou somewhere. <laughs> uh, hey, Jerry, there's like 400 of them showing up down to your place. Um, where you like fill all the alligators at? We're coming down. We're going to shoot a match this weekend. Come on down, man. Uh, we'll have alligators for uh, for lunch. Uh, there you so, go. 
so I, I think in general, um, you know, the organization is sound. We have some good people that run it. Uh, you know, Jake Martin uh, runs Frontside. Jake is a wealth of knowledge. He's been there forever. Uh, and, and Troy, um, Troy can be a little cantankerous and kind of cranky from time to time. Um, but he does do a good job on that side as a director. And um, so, um, but he can be a little cranky at times towards members and competitors, but maybe I can get in there and kind of smooth him out a little bit. So, um, so we have a good staff uh, there, um, but like everybody comes along, everybody has a different vision, uh, whether it's good or bad. Uh, I'm going to, I'll give it a shot and, um, and we'll see what happens. So. Okay. Let's definitely pick a day next week and let's talk about this more. You got it. Let's do that. Um, yeah, we'll do it next okay. week, and uh, you'll be able to see my agenda pop up there. And and um, we're throwing some old some some old, old times um, to maybe we talk about the '90s and how the '90s were, um, uh, how the transition of the '90s happened. So there was okay. a lot that happened in the '90s also. So um, yeah. So we, so yeah, there was it was only three guys in that were winning everything. There was a guy yes. named Rob Lake. There was a guy named Jerry Barnhart, and there was a guy named. Todd, I believe that guy was Todd Jarrett. I think yep. it was. So, um, so um, I, I put it on him in the nineties. So um, I, I was kind of keeping people there. All right, All right I, I'm looking forward to part two of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let's set up next week. Um, uh, I will shoot you some dates uh, and some times, okay. and we can do it. And uh, and we'll get cranking. And uh, hope everybody enjoys enjoyed me chatting away here with you. Um, so. We shall we shall be um, be in touch. Okay, sounds awesome. Thanks for coming on, Todd, and I look forward to part two. You got it, man. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Until next time, don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>